Welcome, everybody, to episode 31 of the Wrist Cheese Radio podcast. I'm your host, Bro Dinky. I am not with Schmidt tonight, but in a podcast first, I'm going uh, down a man. I am one on two tonight, and I'll get to my guests in a moment here in your, ho- uh, your home for orological hot takes, taboo topics, and often unpopular watch opinions. Without Schmidt, I really don't have much housekeeping or anything to get to, but um, I do have two people with me tonight. It's kind of interesting because they very much look alike. They are brothers, and I will kick it over to them in a moment. Um, so, boys, why don't you give us a little quick rundown of who you are, where we could find you, and uh, why you might be here tonight? Yeah, I'll go first. I'm Justin. Uh, I run a blog and and uh, my Instagram page, The Restorian. So I kind of do uh, yeah historical deep dives on the. Uh, vintage mainly dive watches but vintage watches in general so i just i dig into the history and then i write them up and uh, sometimes other sites pick those up and you know two years in and here i am and then i'm Devin, and i'm the identical twin brother of justin um i like to say i'm the heart of the historian and justin i usually say i'm the heart of the historian and he's the brains or if he says he's the brains i say i'm the, I'm the heart either way but I just help him basically. We're both into watches. And so I, I tend to just help him out, find things where I can dig stuff up and, and shuttle it his way. But I'm at Foglark on Instagram, although I don't have that many followers. I don't promote myself that much. So I usually funnel people to the Restorian. That's cool though. You have like a little tag team actually going on there. And and it's, it's also nice. I didn't know if you were directly involved with the page. I mean, I assume you had some connection to it, but I didn't know if you were, uh, team restoring or if it was just some sort of uh like my brother's doing big things and i'm here for the ride but that's cool that you guys are both doing that i also can't imagine what it's like to have someone in your immediate family who is i don't want to say pushing you in the hobby but even i have close friends that are into it with me and it's bad like we we're constantly hey guess what i got in the mail hey like to have a brother in it i cannot imagine like how how is that I mean, it's so, yeah. So obviously we're identical twins. Devin's a minute older than me. So like, you know, for the past 34 years, it's always kind of on some level been like one upping a little bit or just like, like sort of violently fueling the passion into whatever hobby we're into. And so uh, Devin sort of got into watches more than me first. And I've obviously eclipsed him at this point. The Restorian really is just me. And Devin helps out, you know, as we talk about (laughs) Uh-huh. He does a lot of a lot of the really good stories I've I've gotten and some of the even the pieces in my collection. Uh, Devin sort of pointed out. Um, I do all the writing, you know. I, I do a lot more on the writing side, but but digging them up is him. But no, I mean, luckily we don't like push each other. But you do get that thing. I think like friends and like um, even sometimes just internet friends get where it's like, hey, check out this like uh, vintage like Zodiac Seawolf. It's only seven fifty. It's the original owner on eBay. You know, in fact, Devin's watch that he's wearing this Doxa was, that was like that. I knew oh, he man. liked them and I found it on eBay and I, this guy had listed a Seawolf, a Super Seawolf. Um, so the 75 ATM, you know, the old uh, deep diver model. And you could tell on eBay, sometimes it's really easy to like, if you see original owner or like, hey, I bought this watch at a dive shop, you know, it's been in my drawer. So I was like, hey, Devin, maybe you want the Seawolf. And then literally like, I think it was like within 10 minutes, the guy posted a Doxa. And, 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 you know, original shark hunter and it wasn't in perfect shape, but you know, it was original. So it's like, I'm going to kick that over to Devin. And, you know, so sometimes we're like, especially if we know like, Hey, you've got a couple 
thousand laying around through your neck. <laughs> easy to be like, you should get this or you should get that. And so there, there is a lot of that. It's not really competitive. Um, but when you're twins, you get used to sharing stuff. And it's kind of nice to know, like, if I ever want to wear a shark hunter for a week or two, I don't have to buy it. And I just know I can borrow it from him. So that's a pretty cool aspect of it. Yeah. When you admit that I'm half the Restorian, you can borrow the shark hunter. <laughs> yeah. That is cool, though, because at least when you borrow it, like there's always when you borrow from from a, somebody else, there's always a little bit of a awkward, you know, what's going to happen. But, you know, each other are good for it in this case. So that's great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sure. I've, I've definitely had that with like when you're at like a we don't do a ton of like watch meetups, but I've had times where I've brought, you know, like a few of my mainly vintage stuff in my collection. But I brought it to a watch meetup and it seems like you always get like one guy who's like too comfortable with your watch. I don't know if you've ever had that, but they're like. They're like, let me check this crown action. Uh, let me check yep. every position. Let me like yeah. hand wind it. Yeah. And like, or like turn the time back. Yeah. Let me change it. the date. <laughs> right. Yeah. And you know, and I'm like, ah, careful. I don't want to seem like that guy, but it's, <laughs> you know, I don't want you to like jack up the movement or something. <laughs> yeah. And especially when you get one that you know hasn't been serviced in like yeah. a couple decades. It's <laughs> yeah. like, there's probably sand and like grit and stuff in there yeah. and I don't know how to fix it. So just, <laughs> I don't, there's always at least one guy who's yeah. like, who's testing out the limits of your watch at a meetup. He's like, Oh, this, this crown is a little, it's a little hard <laughs> to get it in here. And you're like, no, 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 no. Give it a little whistle and see if maybe I can get yeah. it to set. Yeah. yeah. It, is this supposed know. to come off? <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. Uh, that's cool. That's very cool. So yeah. it's funny because I was actually familiar with Justin's page and then separately wound up just, I guess, interacting with Devin. So I, I sort of indirectly knew both of you. And yeah. then eventually Devin put me on and, and I was like, oh, yeah, I've seen this before. And I became a lot more aware of it. And then I started seeing it pop up more and more. And like, you know, it's always when people start a blog or a page, you're always like, and I think even when you're the one starting it, you're like, well, where's this going to go? You know, obviously even myself included, because starting a meme page is absolutely ridiculous. And yeah. when, you, when starting that from zero followers is even worse, because if at least if you if people know who you are, you already have a platform, you can kind of work your way into that. When you have zero, I mean, you could just be doing something completely fruitless and at the end wind up with nothing and be wasting your time. I have to imagine that that's what it's like with a blog as well. But to start up from zero is like, it's really an accomplishment and, you know, kudos to you for managing to get where you are, because now you've not only got your own blog, but you've branched out into many places, right? I've, I, I know you've been on a blog to watch and yeah. a few other places now. You want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So, so you're, you're right. Starting a blog was, I was sort of like uh, reluctant, I think at best yeah. when I was at the record, you know. Because we had, I mean, at some point, a lot of our knowledge, I think, for both of us came from literally just like, I mean, forums, just like everyone else, things like that. But a lot of it came, I mean, you can learn a lot from eBay and you can spend too much time on the site. And I've probably done, <laughs> but you can like really get a lot of information, especially if you get these people who, you know, were the original owner and you can kind of get, you know, um, like primary contact, kind of like primary source level information about a specific model, especially something obscure. Um, and so we spent a lot of time and at some point it was like COVID and stuff. There weren't as many meetups and there weren't things I was, you know, I was spending so much time doing it. It was sort of like, well, I might as well try to contribute in some way. So, so yeah, I was reluctant, but I started the blog and then, uh, you know, I was fortunate, I think, uh, pretty early on. I mean, people were really encouraging me to do it and I've always been 
at least decent at writing and, you know, much easier to write about things when, uh, when you're passionate about them. So, sure. but, but, you know, watch in the community, watch bloggers are sort of everywhere and everybody has, it's like podcasts too. You know, it's like everyone's starting one up at some point. I mean, we're going to, you're going to be on our podcast probably in like, you know what I mean? It's just like, that's sure. the way it goes. Yeah. But, uh, you know, but I was like, yeah. And, and even saying, okay, well, I have my angle. Um, or like my angle is watch memes, you know, which is hyper specific or sure. my angle really deep dives into vintage models. If I was a better blogger, I wouldn't have chosen that angle probably because it's, a, you know, it's, it's not like it's an infinite well. I mean, it, it is in the world, but, but finding those stories is like, I'll find like maybe one really good story a year and then I can find some sort of average ones. And so it's not a constant supply. Um, but no, I had, I had an old Seiko watch I bought that was um, used in Antarctica. And that was sort of like one of my big, big deep dives early on. And that kind of got me connected to Cole Pennington at Hodinkee, who wrote it up. And, you know, that was cool for me because that was pre my own blog. Um, but that was definitely sort of the start of me really digging deep into history because there's only, I mean, the exact model of mine, mine's the only one I've been able to find. There's a couple that are super similar. But even then, you know, probably less than five that are known of that model. And so, you know, Cole's a big fan of Seiko, just like us. So he wanted to write it up. I got to send my watch to New York to be photographed by Hodinkee. I got to like interact with Cole. So yeah, so for like just somebody who at that point was just, a, you know, a casual fan of watches um, and who had invested probably too much time into that exact watch, it was like, well, this is great. I'm going to be on Hodinkee. I mean, it's not me, but like, it'll say my name and that this is my watch. It's still pretty sweet. Um, yeah, that got me to Cole and that was sort of like, Hey, I like to write. So he sort of got me to write something for gear patrol, which I, so I wrote a couple things up for them and that led to a blog to watch at the same time I started my, my blog. Um, and like that, I sort of did some work with craft and tailored, like they, they picked up a few of my articles from my blog. Um, Very cool. Connected me to Adrian at Bark and Jack. There's one he liked that he kind of shared. So yeah, it was like it was kind of nice. It was like a good segue to like meet different people in the industry and and maybe their focus isn't these like super vintage like deep dive kind of things, but one or two of the articles we did sort of like supplement what they're trying to do, you know. Um, so yeah, so that kind of got me connected to them, and then it's led to a little bit more work with Hodinkee, which has been really fun and. Honestly, it's like trying to just balance stuff for my site has been the hardest part. And, you know, I, I can imagine running a meme account for as long as you have, because I'm still like, I, you know, it's like I'll wake up every day and it feels like I go like, man, after work, I got to start trying to get something written for my site. It's been like a month or two months since I've updated it. And I don't just want to throw something arbitrary out there just to say I updated it. So it's sort of like, you know, I want people to know I'm still doing stuff. It just, it's, I yeah. figure out. You know, I feel that I feel that the yeah, the need to st I don't want to say stay relevant, but when you have a day job, like putting out content is not your primary focus. I mean, even people who are super into it as you are, I mean, I mine is a lot less effort than yours. I'm not going to put them on the same <laughs> level, but even like, you know, I try to throw something up daily. It, it, it's not always easy to come up with something good or find something super relevant or super like something that's going to hit home with everybody every single day. I can't imagine trying to come up with quality historical content because let's face it, you only have backwards. You don't really have forwards to go unless 
unless somebody releases something that is a callback and then you can kind of use that as a gateway, I guess, but I can only imagine. Um, So speaking of your historical sort of digs, um, how do you really decide what to go after and like what methods do you use to sort of sleuth out these horological mysteries, I guess, if you will? Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's almost like you got to do like a, like a case study on something I've done it on, you know, like, um, don't give away too much of the secret sauce here. No, but. no, it's, 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 not, it's not secret. I mean, in a, you know, in a, in a perfect world, I can talk to people in a perfect world. I'll talk to the owner of the watch, you know, if, if I really can, um, I, I tend to like watches with like case back engravings that are really I don't have a whole bunch, but I've seen quite a few cool ones. Um, eBay is actually a really good place for that too. If you're looking at engraving, I mean, you can see a lot of engravings that are really nice. Someone gets like a Rolex sub on Christmas in the 80s, you know, like those things I like quite a bit, but uh, I saw like, you know, I saw an old Pulsar, one of those like uh, Hamilton Pulsar, like digital ones that was uh, like, the, to, like the Bond watch. No, like the um, sort of red LED. Yeah. Like, you know, those like red, they have like a lobster sure. brace, kind of thing, right? And those were everywhere, I think, like in the sort of like 70s, kind of 80s era. And uh, I found one that was like on eBay. And I want to say it was it was definitely under a thousand. It was like it was like eight, under 800, I think. But it was from Elton John to like one of his producers. Whoa. That like, you know, from Elton, I did a little research and it was a guy named I can't remember his last name, but it was Gus something. It was like one of his producers. And it said the name of the album that, you know, and you're like. And then I looked up picture, you know, that was just typing in this guy's name that he had given it to. And you can see him like in the studio with Elton John wearing that model, you know, and you That's go, well, crazy, actually. I can't say it's the exact watch. It likely was. I mean, it's what are the odds? But um, and you can see Elton John wearing the same model, too. And you're like, well, clearly yeah. these guys were all wearing that, you know, sometimes. So sometimes it's, it's like not too hard. Like that's like a pretty easy one when you get like a celebrity or somebody there's tons of pictures of. Um, but a lot of times I, you know, I get a watch. I, I like, I'll buy a watch. I'll know it's interesting enough to buy. And I'm really just kind of rolling the dice and saying like, yeah. I think I'll find the history. Um, so that, that Seiko that I mentioned from Antarctica, it, it has a dial that's marked MSST and then a year range. And I remember seeing it for like 1200 bucks. This is, you know, years ago, but it's a 6306. So it is a little bit more, you know, it's the JDM version. It's not a 6309. So it's a the little original bit original turtle. Yeah, it's a yeah. little bit more valuable than 6309, but it's, it, I don't know that it's, I mean, this one's probably 1200 It's worth that. But I mean, a standard one, probably I would have been overpaying. Um, but that dial I knew was unique. They didn't say anything in the description about what it meant. I think it said maybe military, but that was like okay, you know, a shot in the dark, right? And I remember typing in MSST, if, you know, when I was like, should I buy this? It's a lot of money. And I do love Seiko. So it wasn't like a big stretch. Like if I get a unique one and it's related to like something uncool, it's still a cool watch. Right. So it's like, I wasn't, it wasn't a huge gamble, Um, but I typed it in and I found some stuff that was kind of like loosely associated. And one of them was an Antarctic program called MSSTS, but it was in the same years. And that was sort of enough for me to like buy it, which this could certainly work out differently than it did. But for me, it worked out well. So I bought it and then I did a lot more research and I, and I, I was pretty sure it was tied to that specific program. Uh, a good thing about a watch like that and any sort of uh, military or anything that involves like universities and stuff is you know, anything scientific is like the, a lot of these people who were still around, they were listed, you know, listed all the personnel involved in the program. And this was a joint thing between like New Zealand, 
and Japan and the United States. Um, so I could find their names. And then a lot of these people were still, the ones who are still around were still teaching. Like they had like a university email. I mean, they were professors. Oh, so there was a so, contact that you could yeah. make there, which is great. So it was really just like, okay, I'll type in this guy's name who was a lead scientist. Um, and I'll type in, you know, this and then like Wellington, New Zealand or something like that. And it'll be like, yeah, it'll be like professor. What's his face from university of New Zealand. And you know, it'll list his email. So, so the, I, that one, I was pretty quickly able to email um, three, well, at least three people who were in the program. And one of them was like, oh yeah, I've got one of those sitting at my desk, you know? And, uh, and like I said, this is something that a lot of people in like the sort of Seiko and like watch community had never even seen. Yeah. And this guy, oh yeah, I have one like literally right next to me in my desk. <laughs> So he sent me a picture. And so that two of them ended up coming back and saying like, oh yeah, I got one of those. And so they were able to tell me what year they got it, who it was that gave it to them, what the text on their dial said, you know, the serial number, yeah, why it was given, you know? So that was really nice. Cause that's kind of what I was talking about earlier when you get like a, like a pretty much a primary source. Like they would, they were like, I was given this by Japan's Antarctic research division leader in Antarctica in 1979. He gifted it to all the lead scientists. Wow. And that was a thing. That's like a, you know, that's a, that's a, I'm certainly not like a cultural expert, but gifts were like a big thing. Um, I think in Japan, but certainly for this guy, his name is Dr. Uh, Tetsuya Tori. And he, he, he's sort of a big name. He passed away, I think in 2008, but he was a big name in like Antarctic research in Japan. And uh, yeah, they, they, you know, so they'll come back and a lot of these people just love to tell their story. You know, they just love that somebody's interested um, and they don't, you know, and I think you'll hear this from a lot of people who do kind of what we do, but they don't always love like, uh, they don't love like watches the way we do really, sure. you know, they're, they're sort of like the people who are like, uh, like I, I found that like with military, a lot of them are even more, it's like, you got to email maybe like 10 times back and forth to kind of like get them to warm up, especially <laughs> when you're talking about watches. Cause they're sort of like, I don't, you know, I'm not really, yeah, I had a doc, so I don't really know. What do you want me to say about the dive? It was a, you know, I wore it when I was diving. Yeah, I, it. you know, yeah. It, it, so they're very much like it seems like they're the few words, but the these sort of like civilian scientist types. Yeah, they love they love talking about it, and they tell you stories about how they had American whiskey waiting in their hotel in Japan because that's what you know they wanted to gift them something that they were like, you know, that felt like an appropriate thing from like their home, and you know, like. It's just, it's just cool to get stuff like that. So my process for that was a lot of research on like, uh, there's a lot of historical archives. I did, I did a piece with, with Cole for Hodinkee last year that was like diving into like uh, government. government archives. Yeah. So what did we use? We used like uh, CERN, CERN, New yeah. Zealand's Department of Conservation, yep. uh, Scripps Oceanographic Institute, mm -hmm. and okay. also Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute. Noah. Noah. Yeah. So, so a lot of these, these sort of like government or like or college, I guess, entities yeah. have like really, really nice, like complete, like photographic libraries, you know, where you can type in like tektite. If you want to see, we well, you know that was like an underwater habitat um, in the seventies, you can type that in and you get like a bunch of photos and a lot of them are super high quality. I mean, I was always impressed at like how good these photos are. You can like, we were joking about um, like, you know, the forensic side of, uh, yeah of this research but some of those really you can zoom in and like practically read the, you know you can like read the dial like you wow, can really get pretty definitive um because this one i did with cole we, we used all sorts of different i think we each put in like 10 different watch spotting 
it actually, you know, I was, I was pretty happy. It was voted like one of the top five articles on Hodinkee in 2021. Which um, is amazing. Pretty amazing. Yeah, they, right? they, put out, <laughs> they put out hundreds of articles. Yeah, plenty. Of plenty of articles. <laughs> It was like, it was funny. It was number five. So it like, you know, it like barely made the list, but it still was counts. technically top five. Um, still counts. So I mean, it's, still it's not the watches of Space Jam 2, but. Right, right. <laughs> right. I, that was number one. But Danny yeah. Milton's all over Space Jam and I can't honestly compete with that. But still, top five was good. And and uh, yeah, some of those pictures, I mean, it's like you'd have a person like super far back from the camera. I remember there was one um, where it was like two guys on top of a, a research vessel in the ocean and one of them's wearing a Seiko 6105 and the guy next to him has got like a digital Casio. So this would have probably been like early eighties and sure. likely he was wearing that 6105 obviously for a while, but it's funny cause you could zoom in so well on the photo that you could read the time on the screen of the Casio. Wow. And like, you could tell that the um, 6105 was matched up like almost perfectly with the time on the Casio. So it's like, yeah, some of these archives just have like tons of, uh, you know, tons of like really good photos. And so a lot of times we'll, we'll look for that um that's tedious i mean that's that part of the research process it's fun like if you enjoy the sort of like you know the scrolling through hundreds of pages of photos looking for a watch that might be interesting it's much harder when you are looking for a specific model you know it's like it's one thing if you're just looking through them and you go i'm going to set aside anything that might be cool which is sort of what that hodinky article was it was mm -hmm. like we kept a spreadsheet of you know uh and devin helped a ton with that it was like hey i found a you know one of his was like, oh, I found like an old Seamaster 300 on, a, on this guy holding like this crazy New Zealand bird that was an endangered species. And he goes, it was like, he identified it. He put it in the, <laughs> in the hopper, you know, and we could like, and so a few of the ones I put in there were uh, that he found, I didn't find them. I just wrote about them, but uh, it's nice. How, that's another nice thing about having like a sort of support services behind right. the brand is like, I'm not still going to call him the heart of the restorian, but I'll call him support services. Uh, I mean, that's fair, you know, cause, cause yeah, we'll have this hopper in, in, in Excel, you know, we'll obviously start from scratch and we'll end up, I think we ended up with almost a hundred different models we found, yeah. you know, some of them repeat a lot, 6105s, you see like Very you know, 20 of them are 6105s, but yeah. you know, which is cool. I mean, I think that's super cool too, but uh, yeah. So the process varies a lot, but, but the big deep dives have been more like we've, either he's found it and I bought it or I found it myself, but you buy an interesting watch and then you just like do as much research as you can. And like, you're just amazed at what kind of stuff you can really, it's a little scary how much like you can find on the internet, but like, you know, you can find email addresses for people and you can find <laughs> images and you can find like, it's hard. That's the hardest part is the like, Hey, I don't want to freak you out. Uh, but I just write about watches and I think I bought a watch that maybe belonged to your dad. I'm sorry to hear that he passed away 10 years yeah. ago. Sure. Do you remember, you know, it's, it's really, really hard to like, like gracefully say like, you know, it, it does sound like a very well laid, um, identity theft scam. Yeah, that too. I can't yeah. lie. <laughs> I was just saying the same thing. I'm a Nigerian prince as well. So if you could, you know, it's, it's difficult. Yeah. It's like, it's like, don't freak out. But what you was know, your mother's maiden name, by the way? <laughs> right, right. Anytime somebody says "Don't freak out," you're like, "All right, I'm closing." Social that. security, yeah. red flag, mm -hmm. <laughs> life lock. Yeah. So that's so that's a, that can be a tricky part. It's like it's you know, it, like I said, people just are, are kind of like, "Why are you even interested in that?" <laughs> yeah. But many of them have come back and responded and been super gracious and and. Yeah. I, some of them, I think, were I finished the whole article, I send it to them. They're, they're always nice, and whether they mean it or not, they're being nice to me, and I appreciate it. And, uh, 
they're complimentary and I, I think they probably leave the experience like not really understanding it still but I'm just you know I'm just glad because because people who are like as deep into the sort of nerdy side of watches as we are I think they appreciate those stories too you know just the owner might not appreciate it but sometimes it also lets the owner know that they have something that's more valuable than maybe they realize yeah. there is a benefit to it you know it's like um the one came out on hodinky about that seiko and uh one of the guys i had talked to a um a professor a, a geologist he had two different models that were used in antarctica and both of them had those same special markings because um I, it, we don't talk about it much in that article, but mine's a 6306, like you said. So it's like the original turtle, right? Yep. Or the 6306 was a 6105, which is super popular, the, the Willard. Willard, so, yeah. So, so Dr. Tory on an earlier program, gave people uh, 6105s with a specially marked dial. So there's a few of those around. I think we've maybe seen five or so. Yeah. So they're still super rare. But um, this, this professor I talked to had one of each, a 6306 and a 6105. And he probably, you know, had no idea what they were worth. And truly, I mean, even now you can't, it's, I don't really know what they're worth either. Whatever yeah. some. How, how can you really put a price on it when there's so few? Yeah. Right? Yeah. So it's like, you know, it's not like they, they like hit the open market that often. And even when they do, so few people know about them, they're probably not worth what they should be, which is good if you're a collector, yeah. you know, now's the time to get it before, before people ever really catch on. It's like, it's almost too obscure that I don't know if it'll ever really be as valuable as some of the other Seikos just because it's like yeah it's but luckily all the people who fake these uh scuba pro 450s you know which are a really rare 6306 um they haven't gotten the faking the like hyper hyper specific antarctic Seikos i hope they don't you know yeah i mean i, I guess it would be almost like a tough sell because like you said if you're only aware of a handful mm -hmm. of them and let's say you know somebody who has one like what really are the odds of it being legit? Like if, if there's yeah. five of them on there, you know, and you're like, uh, yeah, but that is, I mean, I heard you actually talking about that on uh, Rico's watch podcast. Shout out to Rico. We, we've both been a guest on that. So that's cool. Um, oh, yeah. But uh, I, I was like salivating listening. Cause I mean, I'm a huge Seiko head and, and I love vintage specifically. I, I love vintage Seikos. Um, mm -hmm. But hearing just like the specifics of the dial text and everything and then you're like yeah i only know about like four of these and i was like man that's like imagine if that was like not that they're at all in the same ballpark but like if that was a rolex imagine what that would be worth yeah like, well, you know, money, right yeah you, you get like oh it's a different color you know you get like red text submarine yeah. and you, you know like the color of the comex text, yeah like, <laughs> yeah you get comex you get some co-branding or something like that yeah but your tiffany signed i mean and that's another thing that I, I, mean, I know Devin's really big into um, scuba branded dive watches and has some pretty special ones, but like, um, but yeah, having a dial marked for like a specific, like a specific scientific program, like you said, if you saw that on a Speedmaster, if it said freaking like Apollo 8 or I don't know anything about Speedmasters really, but you know, if it was marked for that mission, like Gemini something, people would go crazy, you know, it was like, yes. oh, that was, a, you know. I, and I get that Antarctica is not um, like the moon, but it's about as close as you can get, I think, on Earth. You talk, you know, sort of bottom of the ocean or Antarctica. I was going to say, let's be real, though. There are places in the ocean we have not explored, but we've been to the moon. 
Oh yeah, right? that's true. Yep. Yeah. I would also say that some of the habitats that they did in the past in the seventies and stuff, Tektite was studying how people interact with each other mm-hmm. uh, in confined spaces like that for application in space stations or in space shuttles, things like that. And then Antarctica, they tested quite a few vehicles that I've read about uh, for use on the moon. Um, so both of those places, the ocean and Antarctica both have um, context in, in relation to, to like the moon and, uh, and mm-hmm. space flight. So yeah, something there. Funny tidbit, and this is total serendipity just in the past <laughs> day. Um, while I was touching on Rolex and we're talking vintage Seiko, right? Everybody knows James Cameron as the sea dweller, right? Deep sea. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just so happened to, I was stumbling across a, it was a post from a, uh, it was an Instagram post from a movie account and it was like then and now and like what people used to do in their i guess past life james cameron was a truck driver i guess they have an old picture of him and you can just type into google james cameron young clear as day picture of him like this on the wrist seiko arnie yeah 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 i've seen that one and also yeah. uh, james cameron did the abyss and in the abyss they were 6309s i believe yeah in the movie it so i mean they're before they got into some of the rolex and some i think there's a rolex in that as well but most yeah. of the divers are wearing yeah 6309s in that movie so. but i was like how appropriate that i was like i'm gonna be on with the historian and i found an <laughs> old photo of james yeah, cameron yeah, mr mr sea dweller wearing an arnie which yeah. is a watch i actually own which is pretty cool i mean it's a reissue but still it's a it's like a cult favorite you know of seiko seiko heads so I thought that was really cool. Um, yeah, so I guess you've been a lot of places, quote unquote, um, <laughs> in your in your journeys. Uh, what I guess are some of the stranger things you might have uncovered in your in your deep dives, or what what are some of the the weird rabbit holes you might have found yourselves in? Because I I don't do what you do, and I've found myself in some weird ones oh, yeah. myself. But. I don't know. You want to, you can take this one first. Uh, well, we were talking about this earlier a little bit, just kind of trying to like quickly bring up different rabbit holes. And I mean, I guess off the top of my head, you can jump in, Justin, but like uh, like championship canoe racing in Canada, <laughs> hot air balloon racing, speedboat racing, Dakar rally. What else have we got? We've gotten some weird ones. Yeah. Un- undersea habitats, certainly. Yeah. Outer space, like space flight, I suppose. Mm-hmm. What else have we got? But like really weird stuff. Yeah, you know, and like so, so I'll do like these huge deep dives, but I also do find myself just like uh, like researching. You know, they, I wouldn't call them deep dives, but I probably spent like a couple hours sometimes. But I remember seeing a watch on eBay, probably like it hadn't been a couple of years ago, and it was like an old alarm watch. Um, so you know, it was like two crown kind of alarm watch, right? And it had like a like a big. <laughs> it sounds ridiculous. It had like a big pigeon like drawn on the dial, okay. like a you know, and it was by a company, I think called like SDW or something like that. And I looked it up and this company made pigeon racing clocks for pigeon racing, which I guess was like, <laughs> there we yeah. go. This yeah. is what I was so looking was for. Kind of, I know. I didn't want to disappoint. I was like, what's in a really yeah, pigeon? <laughs> so pigeon racing used to be a thing. And I don't know if it was like time trial. I don't know how it worked. It was like time trials, but long story short, if you type in that company, you can find lots of like, they're like, you know, they're like uh, almost like a box with like a clock on the end. And this company made a whole bunch. But apparently, at least for a certain amount of time, they probably had like a catalog and they sold like wristwatches for the sole purpose, obviously, of telling time, but of, of pigeon racing. And to make it clear, they would put like this big, like multicolored pigeon, like on, 
I'll send you one. Some I'll send you an image because I can find them. Yeah, STP something like that. It's a that was an obscure one. I never. I wanted to write an article about it, but I haven't really. I haven't (laughs) bought one, and now I've probably like blown the lid off of pigeon racing watches. Now I'm gonna have to compete with everybody who listens. Right. You you know who you got to try to get a hold of? I hear Mike Tyson raises pigeons. (laughs) Right. A historian, Mike Tyson piece on pigeon timers would be like the pinnacle of watch journalism as far as i'm yeah. concerned that's a good lead <laughs> we can get him probably. i'm sure we can i'm yeah. sure he's wanting to do it we'll have our people reach out to him. yeah we will i think it's probably it's yeah. doable In fact, Devin, it's get true. on that <laughs> yeah i'm on it mike and i go back away so i'll talk to him yeah it should be easy but that's a pretty obscure that's a pretty obscure one you know it's uh they're very funny watches they're very like just ridiculous yeah but um yeah, the canoe racing one was a real big. I, I, I've talked about that on other podcasts, but it was a that was a very obscure. Like it was a big centennial celebration in Canada, and it was like this grueling uh, canoe race. And I don't remember. It took like months. I think it was like yeah, months it was long. Quite a while, yeah. It was crazy. And uh, I mean, these were like Olympic level athletes. Like you know, this wasn't like they were like paddling on a pond or anything yeah <laughs> there's like bears in the rivers and they're going down rapids and yeah k- picking up their canoe and like running with it some distance and oh yeah it's like you it's know crazy i remember you know because Devin has a watch with an, an engraving on the back that says like how many kilometers and like yeah. where they started and where they ended and it yeah. says the centennial canoe pageant so that one had a lot of information it didn't have a name or anything so we don't know who it belonged right. to but um it had a lot of information about like what the event was um and you know it's funny because devin's like well this could be a good story and i'm like yeah i guess so i mean it's canoeing i'm not like you know it's not crazy i mean it's, it's a lot of canoeing not, because i'm like you know we've been canoeing right yeah, we're in right. kansas we're like oh there's some rivers so like sort of the ozark area it's like some rapids it's not too crazy no. it's definitely not antarctica yeah um and then yeah devin sent me some like images of these people canoeing and it i I swear it was like whitewater ra- it was like whitewater rafting and I remember he showed me one of this it was like the it was like the canoe was like you know multiple feet off like a wave and it was like this guy that looked like Wolverine he was like super <laughs> jacked and it was just like he was like forcing the boat through this river yeah. and I remember being like that's just not in my mind that's not what the canoeing looks like <laughs> that makes it a cooler and I'm pretty sure I put it in my article cuz I was like I have to give people some context but yeah it's like this super jacked like athletic guy guy, who looks like he's like probably powering the canoe by himself (laughs) it was just it was like not what i expected at all so i was like yeah we definitely have to write that up and uh and we did and it was a it wasn't our most popular story i found that the most popular stories are probably the ones that have a rolex in them yeah um that's sort of probably common sense but it took me a while to learn that and i haven't given in yet i've written a couple stories that mention rolex but uh you know I'm, I'm not necessarily in it just for the followers. And there's a lot of people writing about Rolex and, and you get that pigeon Rolex. You get that. Yeah. If I get uh, <laughs> Rolex with a pigeon. Or tutor, tutor advisor with a pigeon on it or oh, something, yeah. you know, yeah. you might be on it. I would love to find that. There you go. I'm a sucker for anything that obscure, <laughs> but uh, until then, you know, I'm not just going to say like, cause at some point really though, it's like, you know, diver in the seventies wore a Rolex, you know, like it's, it's kind of like, that's like, I mean, a lot of them. Here wore. we go again. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. And like you said earlier, like, it's like, you know, a challenge obviously is you're only really looking to the past when you're doing it the way we are. And I found that there's like a point in time in the past when watches just kind of got more boring, you know, like yes. there's a point like when, when courts came out and, and 
you know, I don't, obviously I have my own opinions about like quartz crisis and all that. I mean, there was a lot of innovation. I like, I like quartz watches. I have quite a few. Um, but yeah, at some point it's like anybody doing uh, really intense stuff was, was basically like, I'm going to buy a Casio for like 20 bucks yeah. or a G-Shock, you know? And I think at the same time, then you kind of started seeing Rolex really push to like the more status symbol side of things. Yeah. And yeah. And then you just don't get as many people who are like, on an oil rig with a submariner you know like it, it's just so it's like yeah so it's like you you kind of have like a, these decades from sort of like the 60s up until maybe in the 80s where it's like you can get like really good stories and then at some point you know it sort of tapers off the rolex becomes more of a luxury thing you know you, you just get like generic digital excuse me stuff like that and so yeah so i have like a very finite um sort of sort of like few decades that I kind of have to look in and um yeah and I worry that someday all the good stories it'll just be people wearing g-shocks or something and yeah and you know by then maybe somebody else will have taken the mantle of, of the restorian and I won't have to worry about it but um yeah that's a, that's a major challenge too for sure but that's cool though because you know whether it's canoes or pigeons I think <laughs> everybody they've had their fill of the like you said the the diver wearing the sub or the the race car driver wearing said chronograph or the everybody knows about the moon missions and everything getting stuff that's a little more out there at least once in a while to just wet your beak in something different i, I think there's value in that i mean I, I i don't like to read the same stuff every day right and i, and I think even when i'm making stuff I, I try not to harp on the exact same topics all the time like you said there are certain ones that do better usually when i'm bagging yep. on rolex or, <laughs> yep. or um, I people really like it when I talk smack. I try again. Mm -hmm. I've tried to not tone that down, but just dial it back a little in my uh, maturity, I guess you'd say, and and focus on more relatable things. But people love smack talk. Like the the whole moon swatch thing was just like a solid like seventy two hours of just hysteria of people like make more moon swatch memes, like just dogging this thing. And I'm like, I don't really want to do that. It's more just like the the hype over this sort of toyish $260 quartz watch. But it, like you said, again, I, I don't have any real aversions towards quartz. I mean, I have this yeah. little new pad eye quartz uh, Seiko Solar right here. <laughs> a lot of fun. And I think, you know, that's my kind of beater watch. Like you were talking about how people would kind of gravitate towards a Cassie or something. That's what I love quartz watches for is something that I'm not going to be too concerned with what I do with it. But mm -hmm. at the same time, like, still a cool watch it's still got a you know the pad eye markings on it so like that's awesome you know what's not to like but that's definitely very cool um also talking in watches that have a purpose i did see a an article you wrote for gear patrol about a submarine watch yeah which i mean i'm a sucker for sort of like true military heritage stories mm -hmm. um why don't you tell us a little bit about that one yeah yeah, that was so that was yeah, I, I don't remember when I wrote it, but it was it was pretty early on. I mean, that was definitely it was probably pre my you know, it was pre my blog, it was pre the Restorian, and it was, you know, not long after that piece came out on Hibiki about the Seiko. So that was I, you know, so so when I started writing freelance for Gear Patrol, I sent in some samples. They were like, you know, and this is how I've experienced it with other companies too. It was like, yeah, okay, we'll give you, you know, your writing's fine, we'll give you a shot kind of thing write up like and so i think i wrote up like a generic article that was like five was it five vintage seikos you can get for under 500 dollars or something like that you know so i, okay. I picked 
models I liked, wrote it, they like approved it. And then I pitched the other idea. I had bought that watch. So that's an old Caravelle, um, you know, like late 60s, probably like 67-ish. Um, you know, Caravelle, I think is sort of like the, the sort of like younger sibling of Bulova. It's like a little yep. bit more value friendly, right? Um, and that was a good example. So that was one that I, like I had mentioned earlier with other watches that I had found on eBay. And I want to say, it, I don't think it was listed in like the watches page. It was listed in like the, the history and military page or something like military collectibles. And I noticed that that submarine on the dial in the silent service insignia, um, both are on the dial. And I can't remember what the description said, but whatever it was led me to believe that the person selling it, that was their watch, you know, like they were the original owner of that watch. And I want to say it was, it was like almost kind of sad. I mean, this person obviously was older at that point. And I want to say I got that watch and like um, some other like, uh, you know, pins and stuff like military service pins and things that came with it. And I want to say I got it for like 60 bucks, 65 yeah, like bucks. bucks. It doesn't run. I mean, I've never, I haven't even had it. <laughs> Pretty small. It's like 30, it's got to be like 33, 34 millimeters. It's on the small side. Um, but I reached out to, you know, I, I, I obviously I bought it and I reached out to the seller. Um, his name was Walter and he, he was very nice. And I, you know, I just sort of asked him the history about it. And he basically told me nobody in his family wanted it, but that he had bought it. And he told me the story. And um, basically he was, uh, he, he was in the Navy. He was, he was uh, stationed, I think in uh, Scotland. Yeah, in Scotland, and he was he was on he did a couple he was on a couple different like Polaris submarines, right? And that's okay. what's on the dial is a Polaris sub, um, so sort of like Cold War submarines. Um, but he had served on on the USS George C. Marshall, uh, and they were like tracking a Russian sub or something. And this this would have been like I think sixty six, sixty seven, if I remember right. And somehow they ended up colliding, and it caused damage. Wow. George C. Marshall, I'm assuming it caused damage to both, but it certainly caused damage to the sub he was on. And they ended up having to obviously get back to like port. And then he went home after that uh, to Connecticut, or at least he went to the Navy, the Navy base there in Connecticut. Um, and at that Navy base, his, his, I think his wife and his, uh, I assume his mother and father-in-law were like meeting him, you know, and he went to the, like the shop on the base and he bought four watches from the shop. And I guess, that's the watch that it's, he bought two of that model and then he bought two like smaller women's watches. But he said on the base, yeah, you could just for a short amount of time, they sold that watch with, with the silent service, you know, sort of insignia on yeah. the Carabelle. And then of course the Polaris submarine for people who had served on, on a Polaris submarine. And so he bought it and he, uh, he said he wore his for, for years later in the Navy and he gave one to his father-in-law. He ended up losing his, and so the one he sold was actually um, his father-in-law's. And it was, you know, it was a, it was a nice. It was sort of like, uh, you know, without getting too sort of like gooey about like watch collecting and like the romance of it. You know, he said father-in-law really liked the watch, wore it in a bunch of pubs throughout like Scotland, and just like really kind of treasured the watch. Um, so you know, it's funny because that one's, I guess, it's a military watch, but you know, it's. I think sometimes we sort of go like, oh, this one was in Vietnam and it was worn by like a Navy SEAL who jumped out of a, in a ghillie suit like out of a bush and like <laughs> took out twenty enemies. And this one was very much not like that. In fact, this one wasn't. I mean, other than being bought on a military base, wasn't like a military service watch, right? It was just yeah. worn. I who appreciated the gift and uh, 
as much as I appreciate the military watches, I, I, I don't write as much um, about them. I just don't come across as many stories. And, you know, uh, you know, obviously a lot of people, depending on what, when they served in the military, if you're talking Vietnam era and stuff, like a lot of, my grandfather was like that. He served in Vietnam. You know, a lot of them don't, don't care to really talk even about that time. And so it, it's one thing to dig into people's history as like a scuba diver, but digging into history that's like actual war and things like that. People don't really, you know, I don't, I'm not it's super a little touchy. Yeah. And I'm not even super comfortable with the idea of like romanticizing it too much. So that's why I'm so sort of drawn to, I do like military watches, but that's why I'm so drawn to like military adjacent or something, you know, like with pigeon racing, something totally, <laughs> right? People are going to listen to this and be like, why is that guy obsessed with pigeon racing? I don't know anything about pigeon racing. I literally just know watches were made for it and they have a pigeon on the dial and it was a thing. But this beyond, might be the next big vintage trend. I'm not going to lie to you. <laughs> I really hope it's not. I mean, I, I keep an eye out, but <laughs> don't pop up on ebay too often i want to just like lock one in a lot of the watches in my collection i'm like trying to get and it's funny because i think i'll do that i'll rationalize it in my mind like, <laughs> or, or you know that's another thing about having a twin is i'm like is this crazy or is this pretty cool i mean is it just me or is a pigeon on your dial cool and he's like it's, it's obvious it's cool yeah, it's obvious. Trust <laughs> me, you're gonna want to get this any bird on the dial I right yeah. So, yeah, so that's another thing where I, I, I'll hoard these watches and I'm like, I don't want people to catch on. And, you know, in 10 years, people will still not care. The price, the value of them will have gone down and it will just be me with a bunch of pigeon racing watches. And like, trust me, someday they're going to really they're going to take off, you know, but that's a funny part of collecting for me. Yeah, that uh, that specific article in just looking at, I remember looking at the post and it just reminded yeah. me of probably maybe one of the most badass scenes in any movie involving a watch, which is uh, Hunt for Red October when Connery's standing there as uh, Ramius and he's, he's timing in his head how long he has before the torpedo is going to catch him and they have mm. to do countermeasures and swerve and everything. And he's sitting there and they're like, we have to do it. And he's like, shh. And he's just got his little pocket watch and he's like, now and it, it, the whole thing works out yeah. and you're just like wow that was that was pretty slick and you know obviously he has his moment with the the bond sub and everything but to have two <laughs> that's that's pretty pretty wild um it's it's cool that you did mention that he he bought it on a base um i actually have a friend who just got his grandfather's longine pocket watch fixed um his grandfather bought it, I think, at the end of World War II or his at the end of his deployment. He was coming home. He bought it, and I think it broke in transit, and he never got it fixed. And he somehow got his hands on it, and he's like, maybe I can contact Longines and see about this. And he did, and they, they're like, send it back. We'll clean it up. Now he's got this, and it works. Like, he has this pocket watch. It's just, it's just cool. Like, it came from the war era. Again, it didn't necessarily go through it. And he, I don't think he said his grandfather was like super involved, but you know, he was stationed over there and he wound up back over here. This watch came all the way from, I want to say that somewhere in Germany or Austria or somewhere over there made its way to here. And now it's sitting in, you know, his drawer in New York. It's just yeah. kind of wild. Like how it, how it all works that way. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And that's the thing is like, you know, that some history is a bit more mundane than others. And, and obviously yeah, if we can talk about Aquanauts who spent, weeks under sea back when that was really really cutting edge i mean even now that's pretty crazy but yeah you know like obviously those are like the really big stories but that was one thing i enjoyed about that that particular watch was it's just it wasn't 
it wasn't really flashy, you know? And, and what's funny is even talking to people who wore these watches in some pretty serious situations, you know, like the serious situations they tell us about probably don't even scratch the surface of like the things they actually did either because they can't tell us because it's like G14 classified or just, they were just like, that was just my life. Like I was, you know, I was like deep diving for 30, 40 years and the stuff that's like incredible to us. They were just like, Oh, it was just a Wednesday. Everyday stuff. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So I don't even, so even then you can't really get all the stories. And so, you know, you, 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 but that's, that's part of what you try to do is just tell the stories we can. And it's nice when people, uh, when people reshare them and it's nice when people appreciate them. And then my site is, is not probably ever going to be a, like a Hodinkee sized blog. And that's totally fine with me because I have another job that, you know, and family that takes up some of my time. But, uh, but, you know, I love getting, you know, emails from people that are like, man, I did this crazy. I never, ever knew that watch was involved in C lab or I never knew this or that. And it's, yeah, it's nice. It's like, okay, I contributed something to the, to the hobby, you know, something of some value to someone, you know, (laughs) Yeah. And that actually, what we, what you were just talking about is actually a conversation I've been having with Devin recently. Mm-hmm. Um, just talking about sort of the, the everyday divers that people wore, because I think today everybody gets a little bit spec obsessed and, you know, you see the, oh, this is the ultra deep. Oh, this is the deep sea. And they have these kind of honking watches and they have all these crazy specs about them, but sort of back in the day, those weren't really a thing. And while over-engineered is hot now, um, it doesn't necessarily jive with that historic diver that mm-hmm. you're talking about. Um, in that respect, like what what are sort of the common threads among divers historically that, you, that you've noticed? Because just even from talking now, right, we're talking about like Scuba Pro 450s or we're talking about, you know, Willards. Like these are some of the common ones. Like what is sort of the going rate for your historic divers that you find, I guess, of people who either did commercial or whether it be, um, I don't want to say adventure, uh, I guess research would be the word. Um, what's sort of like the benchmarks for historical divers in that respect? What do you think? Well, one thing I try to think about with some of these divers is that at the early onset of dive watches, you think Rolex, Zodiac, uh, Blanc Pond being yeah. a big one as well. Yeah. And think about those. So, in the, we'll say in the 50s, and I have a Blanc Pond, a smaller Blanc Pond, uh, 50 fathoms from the late 50s. And uh, it's obviously rated to 50 fathoms, which is, I think, a little bit less than 100, 100 feet or something. That um, sounds much more badass than it is. I was a little taken back <laughs> to find out that that was not that yeah. deep. But, yeah, it's not that deep. But I for the Google, time period, probably was. <laughs> that's the thing yeah so in the 50s scuba was a relatively skin diving had become popular it was you know sort of snorkeling basically that glorified yes yeah. and then scuba diving was relatively new so the depths they were able to go to weren't that great so you look at the 50s you might from modern day view from my view now i look at you know 50 fathoms and go oh that's 100 feet or something like that's a pretty weak depth rating but it was really <laughs> good for them then yes and then in the 50s, you see a jump in depth ratings because people were able to go deeper in the 60s because scuba had advanced and then that just obviously kept climbing into the 70s with you know 600 meter watches mm-hmm. like the blow prof or 750 meter watches and in the 80s and past that things obviously got more and more crazy um so i think for me one of the threads to look at is just that like 
nowadays no one really needs a dive watch for actual diving so in a way i feel like we're kind of back at the area we probably were maybe in the late 50s and 60s where we'd probably all be fine with something that was 50 fathoms or was yeah. 100 meters um just because at this point the greatest depths we can go to we can just send a remote operated vehicle there uh, from a safe location and it can withstand those depths we don't really need a watch that can go to that um but i think justin could probably speak to like there's a lot of common watches we've seen people either have yeah. as a primary or maybe even in addition to other maybe more overbuilt watches and i'm sure he can speak to some of that as well yeah so i mean i you know sometimes the the my train of thought isn't really answering the question that you have and i sort of have two trains of thought one is that there the overbuilt watches of like the 60s and 70s there's features you find on some of those that i love that i wish a lot more companies would focus on specific features rather than saying i gotta create a thousand meter diver like cool things were happening with watches like you hear the helium escape valve reference a lot and that was a a technological feat and i and i don't want to detract from that but like um you know De like i said devin's wearing a shark hunter right now i have a watch uh that has that same bracelet as the shark hunter the old expandro doxa bracelet yep and it still blows my mind that doxa was making in fact that's one of my biggest gripes with modern doxa is that they don't have adjustable bracelets i love what what surprising doxa out. and it's just like my one of my favorite things about that old watch and those watches you're talking like they had that in the 60s right 67 or something mm -hmm. was yeah. a sun 300 so it's and other companies did too but you know we're not talking like uh you know like rolex like uh hair puller like expanding bracelets we're yeah. talking <laughs> class um and you know that that's awesome on basically any if you give me any dive watch with that that's awesome it doesn't have to be a deep diver it's just like that's a technology that i think we see it sometimes now but that's like a great thing they could learn from that generation. Um, like the kind of sort of like captive bezel or whatever they yeah, call it. Bezels that require like a flow process. So that requires like a trigger thing, you know, button to turn it or um, old Certina uh, PH 500s, DS2 PH 500s, which are kind of among really nerdy people They're, They were used in tech tight, uh, an undersea program. Those are big beefy dive watches, but those had like that same kind of pressure you know, you couldn't turn the bezel without applying pressure to yep. it. So captive bezel, there's like cool features like that, that I think, um, I don't need to see a thousand meter diver, but I would love to have, you know, 150, 200 meter diver modern that has that adjustable bracelet or that bezel that, you know, there, there's really cool things like that. Um, and then the other thing is I, I, I think it's a, like a watch collector, or like watch enthusiast sort of problem where, in general, people want like the bigger, like badder thing. It's right. like the people like my truck's not big enough. I gotta lift it. You know, we're we're in the Midwest, so we definitely see our fair share of like big, <laughs> you know, it's like my truck is, you know, it's huge, but I gotta make it huger, you yeah. know? And so it's like it's that kind of mentality. And I'm I'm sort of guilty of that with watches too. Like I not all of my watches are big, but I do like a big watch, you know. Um, but I think it's just us rationalizing it's you know we, we rationalize i need i need a screw down crown like i gotta have it Devin, you know is out there like doing field research as a biologist he probably he has i guarantee more need for it than i do i work in like a pharmaceutical clinic so like i'm not in the water at all i'm not yeah. in any danger really at all i'm in a very like sort of medical office environment but you know it's like i think watch collectors we have a tendency to say like we we overestimate ourselves in general i like i need that but then, you know, it's, it's good to remember that like these, 
these dive skin divers, like Devin said, that that um, U.S. divers 50 fathoms that that relabeled Blanc Pond that he has. Like I remember when we found it on eBay, he 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 found it and pointed it out. I mean, it's small. It's like 34 millimeters. Honestly, it kind of just looks like almost a, like a generic like like it's almost like a dress watch with a bezel. Like yeah. it's, it's like they took a very generic, almost dress watch. It's got like a hobnail dial, you know, it's like <laughs> stuff you just don't see on divers. Yeah. It's got gilt lettering. I mean, the lettering is fantastic. That's like the coolest part, but and it does have a little bezel, you know, a little like friction bezel, but like that watch literally just looks like they took something from some company that was like a dress watch. It was like, we'll add a, we'll add the screw, the text and we'll add a, a bezel to it. Yeah. And you know, and, and the Seikos, so the watches that you commonly see, you know, like, like I said, 6105s are everywhere. And I have a 6105, you know, it doesn't have a screw down crown. It's got that weird, like, push lock yeah. thing. Yeah. Those watches work for people, you know, so like, we rationalize that we need screw down crowns or that we need this or that. But then it's like, that's where history really comes in. And you go, okay, well, people were climbing Everest with like an old Smith's wristwatch, right? And that handled Everest. Yep. None of us are, I mean, none of the three of us at least are climbing. <laughs> no, sir. Daily, right. So like, and, and I'm guilty of it too, but like I have a, I have a Nomos I got a few years ago. Like it's a Nomos club. I could probably wear that Nomos club doing everything I'll do for the rest of my life. And it would be totally fine. Yep. You know? So it's just me. It's just, it's just, it's a me thing. I like dive watches. I like this, but at some point I think you kind of have to have like some self-awareness and there's totally nothing wrong with it. Cause like, I'm not going to wear that in almost club every day for the rest of my life, you sure. know, but you, yeah, I think it's at some point you do have to be like honest with yourself and say like, I don't, I, I can buy it. I can get myself a, a Pelagos or something. Yeah. I definitely don't need it. I'm not adventurous enough. I'm, you know, who am I kidding? But you know, that's, that's the, really the plight of like, that's the thing about these people who, who wore them back in the day is, we focus so much on specs and capabilities and stuff that I think we psych ourselves out. Like, ah, oh, it's only good to a hundred meters. Yeah. Agreed but, on that. <laughs> I know it's not a hundred meters, but like, what if the force of my stroke is actually like 120 meters and a flood, you know, like, or like, I've heard people say like, what if like the, the water of the shower head hits directly onto the crown, you know, they're like, it's like, I can only take a glancing blow. I can't take, yeah. <laughs> you know, that, you know, I can't take a direct hit to the crown. Yeah. And, uh, it's, I think that's like a, I think it's like a weird byproduct of being like too focused on like specs that don't really matter and, and overestimating our own, you know, adventure. Like I know I'm not a strong enough swimmer probably to create enough force to like flood the crown of my, you know, nomos, let alone an actual dive watch. So it's just funny. So yeah, the, the big ones that show up in history are a lot of them are Seiko. I mean, really, I wrote an article for my blog that was, I think it was like 10 different photos from the archives of just 6105s because we had just seen so many i was like that kind of illustrates just how prevalent that watch was you know for every like rolex that was bought in the px or whatever people bought you know 15 20 of those willards or, yeah. or turtles or whatever and you just see them like everywhere and like i said they don't i mean for better or worse they didn't have a screw down crown they didn't it, you know, I don't even know if the original like Doxas had a screw. I know some Doxas, some mm. 300, some didn't later, but T's didn't have a screw down crown for a while. Yeah. You know, so it's just, yeah, we, we get hyper focused and, and really like 100 meters, you know, you're good to go. And, and I think we're starting to see that sort of return of the skin diver a little bit. I think we're starting to see people, there's always going to be the big watch people. And I like having one or two in my collection, but 
but at the end of the day, like a, a thinner watch is just more comfortable, you know, it's more comfortable. I, and I agree. Get, that's one thing I really like about vintage core, you know, well, any courts like that Seiko of yours, I, I've looked at that model before. Yeah. And I think that, that's a pretty thin model, isn't it? It like is. It is. I think it's, it's under 12. I think it's like either yeah. 10 something or 11 yeah. something. Yeah. That's probably actually, that's, that's probably, uh, I, you know, I don't, I just don't have a lot of modern watches. That's probably one of my top. If I was going to get a modern Seiko, I think that's like one of the models that's really more appealing to me is that it's, it's thin. It's sort of, yeah, it sort of harkens back to some of the old, like, uh, you know, court Seiko divers, like early on that were also super rugged and you see them used in like a lot of different historical photos. Um, yeah. Like I said, during the summer, you're wearing t-shirts, you wear those big bulky watches, but, but if I was going to wear like one watch, yeah, I'd happily sacrifice water resistance for like a little bit more just comfort and like wearability and, you know, and call it good. So I think, like I said, the plight of the watch collector, we're just, we're too focused on specs. And it's like, we got to get those extra millimeters and, and uh, water resistance. So. (laughs) And in, in, uh, in touching on that, I know you've mentioned a few so far, but if you had to pick, I guess, what would you say are sort of like the pillars of either of your collections as far as uh, your, I guess your super cool historical pieces you have? Mm. What do you think, Justin? Yeah. I mean, I, I'm like a broken record with the, with the Seiko, that, that turtle of mine, but that one's, I mean, that one's probably the, the sort of like cornerstone. And in terms of, I mean, I have two watches that historically I think are, are, are really worthwhile. My favorite probably is that Seiko Turtle, that, that MSST version that I have. Um, some, so much so actually that for Christmas last year, my wife secretly got like a big like drawing of it made, like a hand drawing of it. And it's, it's, guy, it's by a guy, I'll have to plug him, but his, on Instagram, it's McDonald RM. Uh, it's definitely, he, do, he, he does some really, really cool like uh, watch artwork. And I think he's done some work for like, like commissioned by Grand Seiko. Yeah. He's done some really cool stuff and he has a way, he did a cool Doxa. He'll do like just the handset from a specific, he did one with the Willard and a Doxa. So he did this, like, it's like this awesome, like huge, and it captures like every scratch on the bezel. I mean, it's like an exact recreation of my watch. It's phenomenal. But that one's really sort of a, a cornerstone in my collection just because um, I'm a, I'm just a huge sucker for, uh, for sort of like special dials additional dial text even if you get into like even the tiffany sign stuff i mean i don't have any of that but even if it's something as simple as like just just a retailer signed watch i just like having like you know bonus points if it's like super obscure and funny like yeah because <laughs> like i have another one that's it's, it's not pigeon racing but you know these old it's an old hamilton the you know like like kind of like what you picture those like uh you know old hamilton like khaki like military looking you know like 80s hamilton military watch kind of yeah like you get like the ll bean editions and stuff like that yeah the same as that and and there's some good sites that have like yeah ll bean is like is probably the best example of it but then there's like other little outdoor companies and, and those types of things that have also like printed their branding on the dial um and i just happened to buy one on ebay i think earlier this year uh, for a company called Victor Woodstream and Victor now the company still exists but Victor now just basically makes mouse traps like it's got a big, so yeah so like on the dial it's got like a big I couldn't tell what it was when I first saw it it was like I knew it was a Hamilton I recognized the model but I had never seen that dial like that branding 
And I didn't even totally recognize it. So it, it says Victor and then it has like a Woodstream logo. It doesn't really say Hamilton on the dial anywhere except at the very bottom under six o'clock where it normally would say like Swiss or T-Swiss or whatever. It says Hamilton in little letters, but you need like a loop to see it. Um, but it has like a big picture. And I thought it was like an aviation related thing because I thought it was like the front of a plane or like a helicopter. I, I couldn't tell. Um, and so I did some quick Googling and I ended up finding the, it's actually a picture of like one of those old timey, like bear traps with like, like, oh. sticking out and, like you know, the big teeth that like, yeah. grab. So it's, I'm, I'm not pro, uh, you know, catching animals like that or anything, but the watch itself was like very, so Devin and I, it's like, when we talk about that watch, I just refer to it as the rat trap yeah. just because it's like, cause that all the company does now is literally just make like mouse, like, like mouse killing devices. And, uh, and it's the only one I've ever seen. I've never seen, I couldn't, you can't find another example on the internet. I can't find a catalog. I can't find, but basically that company back then was sort of like LL Bean. Like they produced, you know, like gun cases and traps and fishing supplies. So they were like an outdoor retailer. So I, I like the little, I wouldn't call that one a cornerstone, but that I'm just a sucker for like any, that's why the, the MSST is so special to me is because it does have just that little bit of text that's, you know, that other peoples don't have. I guess I'm, a, I'm a, sort of like an elitist in that sense. Like, uh, you know, I'll turn my nose up at other people's standard turtles because mine has, you know, yours wasn't from Antarctica. It doesn't have this on the dial, right? And Take that, really Domino's Pizza Rolex. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's funny because I love those too. And everybody in my family, there was at one point I wanted to get one, but like basically my wife especially, but like in Devin, which were like, are you sure you want one of those? And now they're like, $12,000. I know. So now, even if I wanted to. And so it's funny. So I, I missed the boat on those when they were like, you know, a couple thousand or something. But um, yeah, that's probably the biggest one in my collection. What about you? Uh, for me, I mean, I started out with getting really into scuba branded dive watches. So it'd be like a good example would be the watch I'm wearing, which is my sub 300T Shark Hunter from 1970. I got it from the original owner and it's one that I wanted for a long time partially because they're awesome. And then partially because they're also signed with uh, us divers Aqualung on the dial. Yeah. So it's kind of one of the, one of the big great examples of, of co-branding between uh, a watch manufacturer and a, a distributor that just specialized in scuba. Um, so that was one that I had looked for for a long time and to get it from the original owner and everything was really a, a great thing. Um, as far as other vintage things, my, we mentioned the us divers branded uh, Blanc Pond 50 fathoms. It's the small version, so not quite as well known as some of the larger versions from back in the day. But it's it, you know, it has the 50 fathom script on the on the dial, and it says U.S. Divers, where it would normally say Blanc Pond, just because U.S. Divers got a hold of Blanc Pond was like we want to sell these through our catalogs, and uh, it's also my oldest dive watch at right around like 1958. Um, it's getting back a ways, so that was one I didn't imagine I'd ever get, and I just kind of got lucky um, looking through lots on eBay and spotting that you could. Zoom in on one of the photos in this lot of maybe 20 or 25 watches. And you could just make out where it said U.S. Divers 50 Fathoms in like the classic cursive script. <laughs> and uh, Justin and I were able to get it from this person and for a pretty good price. And uh, it certainly shows some wear, but uh, it's one I never anticipated being able to get. And I was familiar with them before I found it. So um, it helps to, to gain a lot of knowledge and look at a lot of things so that if you do see something pop up, you recognize, oh, this is something special you know yeah. um yeah we always so hear about it, like the magic flea market find right yeah so the legendary uh bucket of watches with the 50 fathoms right. in it for some reason right. that's always the one people go with 
Yeah. yeah. And I found one of the old JB Champion, uh, like Moonwatch Speedmaster bracelets, you know, the ones they wore on yeah. mission. I found one of those and I bought a jar of just watch bracelets for like 15 bucks at a, at a local flea market that him and I would go to quite a bit. And I didn't see it in there. I just bought it going, maybe there's a cool bracelet in here I can use on something. And I remember I, I didn't know about those being used on Speedmasters at the time. So I, I thought, oh, this is a cool bracelet. It was complete. And I put it on some of my watches and wore it around. And I let him borrow it. And I think he Googled it. And he texted me. He was like, you might want to like take back this one bracelet you lent me because it turns out people try to get them for, yeah. for quite a bit. And that, so I ended up finding that. So that's my closest I get to like finding something somewhat valuable, I guess, at a flea market. But uh, yeah, for vintage stuff, those are, those are definitely pillars. And then modern stuff, I... Uh, I like Zinn quite a bit. And so since he mentioned, I do a lot of field work as a biologist. And so I convinced myself I needed a pretty rugged watch at some point. And I've embraced that quite a bit, even though we just said you probably only need a hundred meters and you may not need a screw down crown. And I have a, a Zinn T2B, which is 2000 meters rated and it's 40 millimeters and 13 millimeters, 13 millimeters thick. So for me, it was one of those watches that they really put the effort into. Hey, they have a, a magic formula for dimensions. Yep. for performance i don't know how you what ratio you'd call it but like yeah you know all their divers are like 500 meter whatever and it, it's like oh yeah 11.8 thick and i'm like what yeah yeah the, yeah the u50 they really embraced that he had a u1 which i saw originally i really liked the u1 it was big but i mean it's what i expected from it and it was it was a tank so it was a great watch uh just indestructible feeling um but yeah zin kind of with the t2b they kind of showed what they could kind of flex their muscles in the dive watch space Unfortunately, it wasn't that popular, so it got discontinued. But then with the U50, they kind of said, we'll flex our muscles again and bring out something that's 500 meters and, yeah, 11.8 or whatever millimeters. 41 thick. millimeters, like, yeah. what? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so for my watch in the field, a lot of times I'm wearing that or a Tudor Black Bay ETA would be the other one I wear quite a bit. So for modern stuff, those are, I guess, probably the pillars of my collection. But I have too many watches, so there's a, there's a bunch more than that. But those are my <laughs> kind of my favorite, I guess, in general. Yeah. Very cool. Very cool. Um, yeah. Oh, looks like we're right at about the hour mark. Um, is there anything else you guys want to hit on before we wrap this up? No, I don't think so. I mean, you know, if like I said, I'll save some stuff. So if we ever want to chat again, I'll have something to say. But uh, yeah, and, and thanks for having us on. I mean, like the watch community has been great as we've gotten into it, and we've had a lot of people sort of help along yeah. the way or just be like even just messaging you on instagram and you not just ignoring me the whole time <laughs> i've been lucky with that with quite a few people in the watch space and the watch community so i'm always appreciative of that but it's nice to nice to get on here and share stuff you know where we can we're happy to do it yeah no thank you for hopping on with me and i know i know we had kind of talked about it a little bit previously but um you know i know it's it's definitely an experience for people who don't do it often. I remember when I first did it, I was like, oh, like I really, the blood was really going. I remember the first time I was like, I can't believe this is going to happen. Like, what if I just flop on my face? But, you know, I had, I had a little more of an act to pitch than, <laughs> than most do. But, um, but yeah, but thanks for hopping on with me and, um, you know, nerding out a little bit. It's been a lot of fun. And, uh, yeah, hopefully we can uh, save some for next time. We can do this again, maybe with the Schmitzer, because he's a big, he's an actual diver. He does recreational but not but he yeah. he does do some pretty cool stuff well he's still ahead of us then yeah so. exactly because <laughs> we just we just talk about it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. so yeah so thanks for hopping on uh it's been a pleasure and uh for everybody at home thanks for tuning in we'll catch you next time here on the wrist cheese radio podcast gentlemen thanks see ya